Welcome to Christendom College and our principal's live lecture today. My name is Adam Wilson and I serve as the principal's production manager here at Christendom College. We welcome today all of the members of our Christendom family, our benefactors, our president's council members, our principal society members, including those of you who may be new to our Christendom College family. Again, welcome. I wanted to thank you for making this possible today. Our principal's live lecture, our principal's articles, our classes, and the work that we do here at Christendom College, sharing the truths of wisdom and love and knowledge with a new generation of Catholics are only made possible thanks to your support. Thank you so much for making all of this possible. It's my pleasure today to welcome Dr. Connor Sweeney. A Canadian by birth, Connor Sweeney obtained a licentiate and doctorate in sacred theology from the John Paul Institute for Marriage and the Family in Rome before lecturing as a permanent fellow at the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Melbourne, Australia for six years. Connor taught and researched in the areas of evangelization, continental philosophy, sacramental theology, theological anthropology, the theology of Joseph Ratzinger, and John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Connor is the author of Sacramental Presence After Heidegger, 2015, Abiding the Long Defeat, 2018, the Politics of Conjugal Love, 2019. Dr. Sweeney joined the Christendom College Theology faculty in 2020. We hope you enjoyed today's principal lecture on Joseph Ratzinger's defense of Christianity against Nietzsche. Thank you. Good afternoon or good morning, such as we may find you. Now, I'm not going to be there on the bush here because an academic is always, trust me, always fighting the clock. You can ask my students about that. And so I do want to jump right into the material as quickly as possible. But just a few very minor points to be made. First, the context of what I'm going to deliver today is basically a warm-up or preparation for a course that I'm going to be offering in the fall at Christendom College, somewhat provocatively or apocalyptically named Atheism and the Death of God. So you're going to be my guinea pigs for what my students will get in excruciating detail this fall. Today I'm going to probably deliver this a little more formally than I might in the classroom. And again, because I'm fighting the clock, that hopefully will keep me on schedule. Finally, if I had a whiteboard in front of me today, I would write on the board here a few key words, which I would encourage you to keep in mind. I'm just going to tell you these words, but as I unpack this talk, if you could keep these key words in mind, they will help you in terms of where I'm trying to go and what I'm trying to achieve in this talk. And these key words are roughly in order, eros, moralism, the phrase God is dead, love, agape, truth, and joy. So keep your ears open for those key words because they will help to guide us through the content of this presentation. So today what I want to do in this lecture is simply look at Joseph Ratzinger, who of course became Pope Benedict XVI, look at his response to one of the greatest critics of Christianity of all time, and that is Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche is famous for his vociferous hatred of everything Christian. He called Christianity a capital crime against life. 
He called it a religion of the herd, an expression of the will to power of a weak and resentful type of human being who is incapable of true greatness of spirit, as Nietzsche understood it. So we said all these things about Christianity, but the one particular thing I want to look at today is his claim that Christianity poisoned eros, turning it into a vice or something bad. The quote here, which comes from his book called Beyond Good and Evil, goes like this. He says, Christianity gave eros poison to drink. He did not die of it, but degenerated into a vice. Similarly, Nietzsche also said this, hatred of the senses, of joy in general, is Christian. Now I'm going to unpack everything that is implied in these statements. But before we get to this thesis of Nietzsche's, what exactly is this eros that he refers to? In the simplest terms, we can simply call eros love as desire. It's, of course, a Greek word. So, for example, for Plato, eros is the movement of love that drives us towards an infinite and transcendent beauty that seems to promise ultimate happiness and fulfillment. Now, that's the elevated version, you might say. However, more often than not, eros in its more untamed and fallen state, let's say, more often looks like an egocentric driven passion, intoxication, euphoria, and loss or dissipation of the self in the pursuit of some higher experience or state of consciousness. And here we can talk about eros in a Dionysian sense. I'll explain that in a second. But in the sense of chaos, intoxication, excess and subversion. Dionysian, of course, refers to the Greek god Dionysus, whom I like to call the god of wine, women, and song. You can draw your own conclusions from that. Or to express it in another form of the vernacular, eros in this untamed sense would be synonymous with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And again, you can draw your own conclusions there. Now, when Nietzsche says that Christianity poisoned Eros, what he means is that Christianity has, with its very demanding moral code, essentially short-circuited or subverted the movement of Eros towards transcendence. Thus, he thinks that Christianity has sublimated and effaced the dynamism, the creative fruitfulness that comes with embracing Eros in its full splendor. Christianity has therefore deformed eros, thinks Nietzsche, and replaced its promise of transcendence with a bourgeois and Puritan spirit of repression and resentment, thus turning weakness and mediocrity into virtues, and crucially condemning man to a joyless mundane existence in which greatness is equated with a scrupulous observance of an ethical code that in its essence, according to Nietzsche, is a great no to the real possibilities of eros. So I mentioned the word joy, joyless. Joy will be very important. Nietzsche thinks that Christianity destroys joy. Now, to put it another way, and here we encounter our next key word, Nietzsche condemns Christianity as a life-denying moralism. 
and I'll explain moralism in more detail in a second. But very simply, following a colleague of mine, Dr. Tracy Rowland, she describes moralism in a Christian context as the reduction of Christianity to the dimensions of an ethical framework, or to equate faith with obeying a law. I'll say that again. Moralism we can define as a reduction of Christianity to the dimensions of an ethical framework, or to equate faith with obeying a law. And what this means in a nutshell is that we would take some derivative or partial element, however real, of the total Christian vision, and we would equate it with Christianity's essence. So for example, some like to think of Christianity essentially in terms of morality or with obeying a law. Now, Christianity certainly includes morality in the law of God, but the question is whether this is an end in itself or whether it serves something greater. Others like to think of Christianity as a great humanitarian organization or as a force for social change. Now, Christianity clearly includes caritas and a concern for justice, but again, the question is whether this is an end in itself or whether it belongs to and serves something greater. In each case, if we think of these things as ends in themselves, subtracting from the core of Christianity, which we'll see in a second, then essentially we're dealing with moralism. And we will distort what for Ratzinger is the real essence of Christianity, and thus in fact produce a target, a real target, for someone like Nietzsche. There's my introduction. I'm going to jump into the content now, but just let me crystallize the question that I'm going to seek an answer to in full today, and that's this. Is Christianity nothing more than a moralism that extirpates the possibilities for greatness and transcendence that Eros promises, producing instead a repressed, lifeless, resentful, and most importantly, joyless form of existence? Or is Christianity, in fact, the perfect resolution fulfillment of eros in an infinite and eternal love. So we'll start by looking at Nietzsche, looking at his claims, and then we're going to look at Ratzinger's response to him. So let's look first at the idea of the death of God and moralism. So if we want to get to Nietzsche's claim that Christianity poisoned eros, there's an important stop we need to make along the way. And this is his famous proclamation of the so-called death of God. We need to understand this if we're going to figure out why so many people follow Nietzsche in believing that Christianity is life-denying, stifling, and repressive. So let's read the relevant section from his text, The Gay Science, where he puts these words in the mouth of the madman. This madman bursts into a village and cries out incessantly, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God. After enduring the jeers of the villagers, the madman, as it were, changes from fool to prophet and judge and exclaims, Where is God? I'll tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Now, what does Nietzsche mean with this apocalyptic language? At one level, he seems to be saying something like this. Even if there ever was a time when Christianity was something more than a moralism, 
Well, that time is long past. Why? You say you believe in God, says Nietzsche, but all I see are outward behaviors, traditions, and customs, and rituals, but without any of the vital spirit and conviction that once typified Christian belief and behavior, and which was exemplified in your founder, Jesus Christ, whom actually I kind of admire. Nietzsche called Christ the only real Christian. What I see, continues Nietzsche in this hypothetical scenario, is not real belief in God or some real transcendence, but rather only the residue or after effect of that belief. People still doing Christian things, but only because said things are, are the cultural norm, what everyone does. Why are you living a moral life? Because maybe you think there is some old guy in the sky keeping track of your sins. Or maybe you're just observing what has been baked into social norms and institutions. But in either case, he thinks, we are light years away from things that are done in the spirit of a God who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. Now, the important point here in this withering critique of Christianity is that against the background of the actual Christianity of his own day, Nietzsche's critique has a certain devastating power. Nietzsche did effectively put his finger on the ill health of Christian societies even way back then at the end of the 19th century. He understood that so often what passed for vibrant Christian belief was in fact in most cases only moralism. There's that key word again. That is to say adherence to certain demands of an ideal but for reasons other than real belief in the reality or mystery that stands behind that ideal which is to say, perhaps, the person of Christ. Nietzsche understood that what was happening to Christianity was a profound hollowing out and loss of memory, a profound obscuring and rejection of origins, not unlike any other instance of civilizational decline and collapse. So typically, such decline begins when a culture, a civilization's founding myth or origin story no longer animates social and cultural practices. So at this point, civilization becomes like a corpse, body without spirit. Now, of course, we might be able, like a mortician, to beautify it, dress it up, and make it look like it's alive. And so in the case of Christianity and Christian societies, it was, in fact, social elites who had a vested interest in saying, we don't believe in that superstitious hogwash about Jesus Christ and a God dying on the cross. We don't believe that, but we think that Christian morality is expedient for social flourishing and stability. So we'll keep that. And so Christianity essentially becomes narrowed down, reduced down to its morality. The problem, though, is that a body without spirit is in fact a corpse, no matter what the mortician may do to beautify it. And sooner or later, someone's going to shout, the emperor has no clothes, at which point all of the residual beliefs and practices that have been handed on from generation to generation will lose any remaining power and begin to die out. It's like Eliza Doolittle's father in My Fair Lady. You can see little reason to adhere to the conventional mores of middle-class morality, and thus only very reluctantly enters into the married state. Now, maybe this is just the world out there. Maybe Christianity, in fact, within our own churches, is or was immune to this. But consider something Ratzinger himself said in 1958. He said this, the outward shape of the modern church is determined essentially by the fact that in a totally new way, she has become the church of pagans and is constantly becoming even more so. 
She is no longer, as she once was, a church composed of pagans who have become Christians, but a church of pagans who still call themselves Christians, but actually have become pagans. Now, if this is the state of the pre-conciliar church, then should we really be surprised what happens in the post-conciliar church almost overnight? If Alfred Doolittle could still be prevailed upon, however reluctantly, to go through the motions of morality, now we no longer bother. After all, if morality is merely moralism, if it has been disconnected from the incarnation and the cross, from the good news, from the measure of love we find in Christ, then just how far can its strict demands actually make sense? Just how far can they be perceived as life-affirming as opposed to life-denying? And so it's possible to say that all the various programs of liberation that overtake the world in the 20th century can only be understood against the context of a Christianity that in the 19th century had already begun to be reduced to a moralistic framework and thus bled of its true life-giving sap. Unredeemed eros, long hidden and suppressed, we could say, has taken its revenge. So I think we have to grant a measure of truth to Nietzsche's belief that Christianity poisoned, poisoned eros, at least if we are talking here about the reduction of Christianity to moralism. So let's turn again to his understanding of Eros and Christianity's role in poisoning, poisoning it, allegedly. He says this, or rather, let me summarize what he says with this phrase. Christianity, in suppressing the freedom, spontaneity, and intoxication of Eros, has taken a good thing and turned it into something to be ashamed of, something pathological, something bad, a vice. And Christianity has festooned it with restrictions designed to repress and impute guilt, and thus taken all the joy out of life. Now Ratzinger begins his response to Nietzsche in an encyclical called Deus Caritas Est that he wrote in 2006 by admitting that in some sense perhaps Nietzsche was onto something. Doesn't morality take all the fun out of life? More importantly, he says, how can we actually address this in a way that makes sense? So for example, very early on in his academic life, Ratzinger said this, he referred to the feeling, the cultural feeling that Christianity is opposed to joy. This impression of punctiliousness and unhappiness, he said, is surely a more likely explanation of why people leave the church than any of the theoretical problems the faith may pose today. So Ratzinger takes it as axiomatic that his generation has suffered a profound loss of memory, that it no longer comprehends the real essence and true greatness of the Christian faith. So what then is Ratzinger's answer to Nietzsche? The first thing we can say is he's not going to fight moralism with moralism. He's going to offer something much deeper and richer to Nietzsche's critique. And so he asked way back in 1964, what actually is the Christian reality that goes beyond mere moralism? What is that special thing in Christianity that not only justifies but compels us to be and live as Christians? His answer, and one that's remarkably consistent throughout his entire theological career, is deceptively simple. In a word, it is love. By way of a preview, let me put Ratzinger's answer to Nietzsche in a nutshell for you. This is not the selfish, egocentric love of unredeemed eros that in the pursuit of its own gratification 
trammels over and abuses others. This is not Ratzinger's love. It's not the sentimental and manipulative love that declares itself free from the demands of the truth. Rather, for Ratzinger, this is a love that purifies and elevates Eros, that reveals the truth of love in all its depth and splendor as a union of persons. This is a love that conforms man to the one who is perfect truth and love as a single reality. And therefore, this is a love that evokes joy as its fruit. The genuinely transcendent and holy life and other affirming intoxication, euphoria, and generativity of union that extends into the infinity of eternity. It is in and through this love, then, that Ratzinger will seek to reanimate the Christian body rendered lifeless by moralism and perverted so destructively by Nietzsche's untamed eros. So Ratzinger begins Deus Caritas Est with these words, God is love, echoing, of course, St. John. And this phrase, God is love, says Ratzinger, expresses with remarkable clarity the heart of the Christian faith. More simply, to be a Christian, as he puts it many years earlier, means having love. That's it. Being a Christian means having love. At its heart, the essence of the Christian life is a transforming encounter and union with love. And so before he gets to the necessary moral or ethical truth of Christianity, and there is one clearly, he wants to heavily accent its deepest truth, which is love and a real encounter with love. He says we have come to believe in God's love. In these words, the Christian can express the fundamental decision of his life. Being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, i.e. moralism, but rather the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. But maybe love is too sentimental for some of us, or at least that's the impression we might have. So what exactly is love and what are its essential conditions? In Deus Caritas S, Ratzinger says that love is kenosis, or the self-emptying of the Son, who gave himself up for our salvation. That's love. Love of God and neighbor is what sums up the entirety of God's law, as we hear in the gospel. That's love. And love, as he goes on to say, is therefore not just eros, not just love as desire, but also another Greek word for love, a love given its distinctive meaning in the perspective of the steadfast and faithful love of God that we find in the New Testament. In particular, this love is agape, which heals and elevates love as desire. What is agape? Well, this word, says Ratzinger, expresses the experience of a love which involves a real discovery of the other, moving beyond the selfish character that prevailed earlier. Love now becomes concern and care for the other. No longer is it self-seeking, a sinking in the intoxication of happiness. Instead, it seeks the good of the beloved. It becomes renunciation, and is ready and even willing for sacrifice. Now note how for Ratzinger, the ascending, aspirational, self-seeking impulse of Eros is only prevented from consuming itself in narcissistic dissipation by a discovery of agape, a descending, personalizing, self-giving and steadfast love in which the good of the other and of love for its own sake is realized. Therefore, to Nietzsche, Ratzinger says, hey, 
Eros is great and all, it's an essential and unavoidable beginning, but Eros without agape very quickly consumes and enslaves the self. It mires us in selfish and egocentrism in a way that short circuits the true aspirations of Eros. And so it traps the self in illusion and prevents the attainment of real transcendence. Think, for example, of the dissipation of the self caused by sexual promiscuity or the use of drugs. We'll give rock and roll a pass for time being. So is this, sexual promiscuity and drugs, is this really and truly the great hope of Eros for union, that great promise and transcendence, promise of transcendence and infinite happiness? So Eros needs to be disciplined. It needs to be redeemed. And it is so by agape, which incorporates us into a genuinely higher mystical reality. However, it's also important to say that Ratzinger does not condemn Eros as such. That is, he doesn't respond to Nietzsche by, Nietzsche by lapsing into a kind of Puritan or ascetic moralism that seeks to repress and extirpate the stirrings of Eros, so as no longer to feel or desire at all. The reason for this is that Eros in itself is not bad. Remember that platonic notion. It actually points us towards transcendence. It's an arrow of beauty that wounds the senses and the heart, that sparks in us an awareness of and capacity to look beyond the finite and the temporal. So agape does not condemn or eradicate eros, but rather purifies it and elevates it, fusing the deepest human impulse and desire for union and happiness with a genuine object the eternal and infinite steadfast love of God in himself. This is what ultimately Eros, redeemed by agape, is pointing us towards. So notice then how Ratzinger's response outmaneuvers both, Nietzschean, both the Nietzschean and the champion of moralism, who both assume that Christianity is at its heart a functional moral code based on repression and negation, and measured by some merely extrinsic, rational, or moral norm. Ratzinger rejects both the Nietzschean embrace of unrestricted instinct that leads to selfishness and the moralistic reduction and caricature of Christianity that equates salvation and perfection merely with a Pelagian or Pharisaical adherence to an idea or norm or the truth in the abstract apart from love. No, says Ratzinger, invoking St. John, the true, true greatness of Christianity is that we have come to know and believe in the love that God has for us. Now, I've talked a lot about love, but what about truth? We need to talk about truth. Is there still a morality in Christianity? Is truth important? Or should we flee the truth as a shibboleth of moralism? Well, in short, absolutely not. For it's a category mistake to presume that the truth is opposed to or distinct from love itself. To put it very simply, the truth is coextensive with that love I have just described. The measure and criterion we call truth always refers to love. We're told that the truth will set you free. Why? Because the truth is everything revealed in the God who so loved the world that he sent his only son. The truth is that perfect love that offered itself for our sake. 
The truth is that perfect love which generated resurrection and eternal life that incorporated us into the fullness of God's own life and love in himself. The truth is nothing other than this love, which is why Ratzinger says that one of the great novelties of Christianity is the discovery that truth and love are originally identical. That where they are completely realized, they are not two parallel or even opposing realities, but one, the one and only absolute. And so in this way, moral truth in its fullness and with all of its demands is never something distinct from the love of Christ, poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says. And so Christianity is not reducible to immoralism because its truth is not an abstraction or an ideal out there, somewhere distinct from love. It's not like one day we can say, today I choose truth, but not love. That's moralism, that's rationalism. Or on another day, I choose love, but not truth. That's sentimentalism, subjectivism, relativism. Rather, to choose the truth is to choose love. To choose love is to choose the truth. Thus, while Christianity is not a moralism, truth alone, in the abstract, it does indeed presuppose a robust notion of truth. It requires iron in the soul in the one who seeks to live up to the demands of love. For indeed, if truth is not, not just a nice idea out there somewhere vaguely, abstractly, but if it is identical with love, then the stakes are exceedingly raised. The lover who loves truly and who truly loves would be horrified at the thought of using his beloved as the object of his unrestrained and unmastered eros. The lover who perceives the goodness of love and who seeks the good for his beloved and no longer only his own good, thus sees the discipline and ascesis necessary for love as the condition of his truth, without which it can no longer be called a fair and true love. The one who truly loves then does not experience the demands of the truth as something extrinsic, superadded or dispensable, a burden that takes the joy out of love. No, the lover perceives the truth as the call to true greatness in love, an essential condition of an eros become holy that now refuses all forms of settling that might diminish or manipulate the infinite truth of love. All right, we're almost done. Finish up with joy. To conclude, I hope we have some kind of an answer to Nietzsche, not just as it pertains to all the key words we've seen thus far, but also in regards to Nietzsche's accusation that Christianity destroys joy. For if Christianity is in its essence, that true love found in the encounter with Christ that purifies eros, that fires it towards the superabundance of a faithful and steadfast love, then we would have to say this against Nietzsche. Christianity, in fact, is the religion of eros and of joy par excellence, a holy passion or sober inebriation of the spirit with the power to transport us to mystical union with God himself. If Christianity is love, love that is true, then it's also joy, true, infinite, everlasting joy. For joy is evoked in the experience of love. The infant experiences joy in the beauty of the true love that radiates from the smile of its mother. And all this is why Ratzinger says, the history of Christianity begins with one word, rejoice. Rejoice because on this day a Savior has been born for you. Rejoice because this Savior has conquered sin and all the lies that have distorted true love and that this Savior has opened the door to the eternal joy of love.
Of course, joy in this life is often laced with sorrow. Tolkien called it sorrowful joy. And yet this love, which suffered and died on the cross, this love has already entered the depths of all suffering and death. Only from this perfect love, the love of Christ, the love of God in himself as Trinity, can come resurrection and therefore true joy and full birth into the light of abiding completely in the true love of God. So that's it, folks. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for joining us, and be sure to check out the long-form version of Principles classes at getprinciples.com. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.